with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Marching Orders, a This Week Community News podcast series dedicated to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their stories and experiences. I'm here this afternoon with Hilliard resident Wally Cash. Good afternoon, Wally. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here, and thank you for breaking me in, Wally. I am filling in for our esteemed Scott Hummel, who has done all the previous marching orders heretofore, uh, so I'm taking my first uh, turn at this. I've known Wally uh, for a number of years. Uh, he lives in Hilliard as I do. I'm the Hilliard community reporter for This Week News and decided I would step in and uh, take a swing at hosting marching orders. Uh, Wally is a World War II veteran, a 93-year-old uh, veteran who served three years from 1943 until 1946 in the United States Navy. Uh, he enlisted in August 1943 before he completed his senior year at Grandview Heights High school, uh, asking his parents, I believe, to sign yep. you to be able to join. Um, Reluctantly, they did. How did you, what did you say to your parents? What did you, how did you persuade them to let you join the Navy at 17 years old? Well, first of all, they encouraged me to, but then when I came home with the papers that they had to sign, then they got reluctant about signing, <laughs> but they did sign. I said, well, you asked me to go in the Navy or, you know, encouraged me to. And then when the time comes, you don't want to sign? No, you're going to sign. So they signed. <laughs> Okay. Why were you so inspired to want to join? I have no idea. After I found out I get seasick when I'm in the Navy, <laughs> I wondered why I joined myself. <laughs> I just, of the services, I didn't want to be in the Army. And the Marine Corps would have been too strict on it, I felt. So the Navy was the next choice, I guess. What was your view at, of patriotism at, at the time that America was in war? This is August 1943. <clears throat> well, I followed along closely with what was happening. I had uh, several members in the classes above me that had gone in, and I followed them. them. In fact, as I had uh, a neighbor next door in the other half of a double I lived in that went in the, na the Army, and I had a, uh, a classmate that went in a little bit later. They, I happened to run into both of them on the Guam again. So it was, it was kind of close community. Okay. Your first uh, experience would have been uh, at the Great Lakes Naval Training Academy, yeah. right? In Chicago? Yeah. Great Lakes. Outside yeah. Chicago? I think okay. they could get outside of Chicago. I think okay. they actually called it Great Lakes City name for the place. Uh, what do you recall about your first experience there? One of the first things they said was, you shave every day in the Navy. And I'm thinking, what do I shave every day in the Navy? Because I wasn't growing any hair on my face yet <laughs> at 17 years old. <laughs> But uh, it was as an interesting eight weeks of uh, marching every day, exercise every day, classes every day. We had the barracks the farthest from the gate, and it was a good mile. So when we first got there, we marched a mile to where we, our barracks. Then later on during my time there, the, the Hollywood decided to make a movie about the Navy, and they used our barracks as a prop. And so every day we had to get out, and the movie people came in and had fun with all our stuff, and then we had to come back and straighten it out and clean it up every night for the next day for them. That wasn't the best idea in the world. They left us a whole bunch of candy bars when they left. <laughs> you ultimately chose uh, U.S. Naval Sonar School. Uh, sonar when you completed school. training. Yes. Uh, did you give thought to any other 
uh, career, any other thing you might have done in the Navy besides sonar school? You take a batch of tests mm -hmm. when you go to the Navy, and they decide what you're best suited for. Later on, that's what I did in the Navy for the Navy Reserve, but um, they decided that sonar school was what I was best suited for. Okay. So I, went, I didn't have any, you, you didn't have a choice. I mean, you go. Okay. So five days on a train, just in a coach, getting from San Diego, from getting from Chicago to San Diego was not a fun trip. We stopped in uh, Kansas City. They stopped the train and let us get out in the railroad yard and exercise for a while. One unit formed up and marched around for about 45 minutes. The rest of us just walked around. <laughs> We you, were finally, we finally got there. you were in Sonar School in November and December of 1943, right? Yeah. Do you remember anything, how you celebrated Thanksgiving or Christmas that year? I remember we had a nice Christmas, Thanksgiving dinner at the base. That's all I can remember about it. Holidays uh, came and went. I did not get back home again for a year and a half, two years almost. Um, so I went right from there to the... To the uh, Repair base, went from right there, from there to Guam. And so I didn't get home again. I, all of my holidays were at Navy bases. Uh, describe for the listeners uh, <clears throat> Naval Sonar School, and maybe to some of the younger listeners, how submarines and how sonar with the technology of the time okay. was. Um, at the time, the Japanese had a lot of submarines, the, the Germans had a lot of submarines. We learned to, uh, first, the first was only a five-week school. You could come out there either third-class petty officer, or some of them came out second-class petty officers. But the first week or two was, was a class, and then we went out to sea every day and practiced hunting. And we hunted a World War I submarine that the <laughs> Navy still had. One day it uh, went down and kept going down. <laughs> And we stopped all exercises until they got the darn thing back up to the, to the surface again for us to use. But we hunted that every day, practiced turns. Um, I spent all of my time laying on the deck seasick, so I didn't miss some of my turns. <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was very essential. I, I learned, could, I could tell which way the submarine was going towards us or away from us. I could tell you whether it was a cool school of fish or a submarine. I knew, I knew the theory perfect. I got a 3.9 on the final exam. The next day they dropped me out because I had been off the gear so many times when it was my turn, I was seasick, that they marked my grade down because of that. And, and I thank them for that because I would have hated to have been on a, a small ship the rest of my life. <laughs> so in lieu of that, uh, you uh, worked in a, on, at a repair base. Until the repair base. next? The, uh, okay. San Diego did repair base. Okay. And what that were your experiences was, there? That was the same. Um, that was I was because I'd been in a sonar school, and had a security clearance for secret. They kept me in electronics, mm -hmm. so I was in electronics at the Navy Repair Base, and I was, um, I was just a seaman, so I didn't do anything drinks responsible except take stuff to maybe uh, one of the electricians. Electronic technicians was out repairing the sonar or radar or radio on a ship. I might take him some parts that he had radioed in that he needed. I would take them out to the ship to him. Um, and uh, that's about all I did there. I was, in a, I was in a special segment of that base. I can't think of what it was called. It was something, 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 it was something five. And uh, so I did my time until all of a sudden 
all of us in this thing called five, whatever it was, were all called up and we were all sent to Advanced Base Personnel Depot in San Bruno, California. So all my time I was in San Diego, I was mopping decks or uh, sometimes writing a few orders, do some supply work or delivering parts to the stations. Then I went to Advanced Base Personnel Depot, San Bruno, California, which was the Tanferan Racetrack. Believe it or not, the mm-hmm. Navy had taken over a racetrack and made it into a Navy base. A horse racetrack. They had built, built they, they were built, this finished them, barracks there for us. You had to walk through the mud to get into the barracks. But we drilled in the, in the racetrack oval. We, uh, we, we ran, we drilled around the outside. We had an obstacle course in the middle of the racetrack. And every day we took hikes into the hills around San Bruno, California. One interesting thing was, one day, two days, I was in the hospital with uh, something wrong with my gums. And they put you in the hospital for that in the Navy. When I got out and went back, we are marching down some road in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I look around and everybody's in the ditch but Wally. And uh, they told me why. <laughs> they had a r- rule that every time a plane flew over, no matter mm-hmm. what, you all ran for the ditch. If you were in combat, you would run for the ditch. But they ha- I missed that day because I was in sick bay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but we went through all kinds of training like that. I learned to uh, field strip a rifle. I saw movies kill or be killed. Uh, all kinds of things like that. They issued me green clothing, a battle helmet, combat boots, a canteen. If it hadn't said USN on the pocket of my green shirt, I wouldn't have known what the hell I was in. Because because everything they did was not anything they'd ever heard of in the Navy. It was all combat-type stuff they were training, teaching us. So we did that for, I think it was five weeks we went through all that. It appears you spent most of 1944 then at this uh, repair, Naval Repair Station. Yeah, and, they, right. yeah. Okay. and then five weeks at the, at the Tanferan Racetrack. Okay. <laughs> After your time... Um, in San Bruno, California, you went to Guam after that. Yep. Okay. Uh, tell us a little. Tell listeners a little bit about your experience in, in Guam. Both both your military experience, uh, the time you had to explore the island, perhaps, and uh, meet some uh, people there, perhaps. Let me what tell was that you, like? Let me tell you a little bit about the troop ship going over to Guam. I was a little old sailor on a troop ship, five decks down, no air conditioning. And the ships back in those days. And we were on for that ship for 30 days going to Guam. We stopped in Pearl Harbor. We got a couple of days to go ashore and take a look around and then get back on the ship and keep going again. But that was uh, hot on that, that fifth deck down. And some of us would sneak up and sleep on the deck at night out in the open. Mm-hmm. We would take off our life belts and put our heads on them. And the Marines would come along and hit you with a club and say, put your life belt on, sailor. And so we would put it on and go back to sleep again <laughs> on the metal deck, steel decks. But it was a lot cooler up there even than it was down in the, in the fifth deck below. Anyway, after five, five weeks, we finally got to Guam. Now I am a Navy person in a military confirmation. They put the cargo net over the side. We climbed down the cargo net, 
got into a LCI, LCVP, they took us ashore. And uh, that was all a new experience to me. I, somehow or other, my sea bag caught up with me. I don't remember where. But uh, we'll, we'll go back to LCV, LCV, LCVP going ashore. Uh, walked up the be- uh, bank. There was a bus waiting for us. Got in a bus. They took us to our barracks that the Seabees had already built on the island of Guam. The island of Guam had been taken by the Marines the previous year. We got there in January, and they, the Marines had taken the island the previous year in, in August, I think it was, September, something like that. And uh, so that it had been occupied for quite a while. And so there had been a lot of people there before I got there. You, you thought the way they treat, trained us that we were going to be one of the first ones there. <laughs> the only thing they did give us was a rifle. Well, they did, get, they did give some of the guys some rifles, but they didn't have any ammunition in them. You arrived in Guam January 1945? Yeah. Right. Okay. What do you remember about the people, um, uh, the residents of Guam uh, of Guam that you encountered? Okay, when I first got there, I was still a seaman, so they put me in a galley. We had a galley built to feed 2,500 people. No, the galley was built to feed less than that. We, feed, we were feeding 2,500 people a meal, so we had long lines. But anyway... Uh, I was on a, I was on deep what they call a deep sink. I washed pots and pans for several months. One of my partners on this sink was a native of the island of Guam. They had something called the Insular Forces on Guam that a lot of them surrendered. Some of them hid in the bushes until the Japanese well, finally chased off the island again. But uh, they were back. They were working with the Navy then, so they were working. They were working washing dishes like I was. Um, Washing dishes wasn't bad unless they had pie for dinner. And you might have two or three hundred pie pans to wash. <laughs> that wasn't so bad unless it was apple pie or something that was sticky. Then the pies were hard to get clean. Then you had to dry the pies because they would rust overnight if you didn't dry them. So we had to put them on the, the range, cooking range, and heat them up. Let's get the range on until they get hot, and then you scoop them up and put them on the dry, in the rack on the dry. Drive. That was a fun part. Um, so I did that for a while. Then I was transferred down to, but while I, while I was there, I met Juan Cruz, uh, a native of the island. He was married and had two children. And uh, so I got to know him quite well. I, I knew quite several of them. I knew uh, another guy that I think came to the San Francisco and got a job as a barber. But uh, Juan and I hit it off pretty good. And I was invited up to his house for dinner one night. The reason was when he was sitting on his front porch the day before, French steps the day before, a rooster had been bothering a hen and he threw a rock at it to chase it away and the rock had it and hit it in the head and he killed the rooster. So he was having chicken for dinner the next day and he invited me up to chicken dinner. His house was on stilts, about four feet or five feet high. Uh, polished wood floor in a thing, beautiful place. You took off your shoes when you went in the house. And uh, I, uh, I met the family. I met the kids. Uh, one Christmas, I uh, uh, Christmas I was there. I uh, contacted my parents. They sent me a couple of presents for the boy and the girl. And I took a picture of them. I said, I'm going to take a picture of the family. And I went outside, and the little girl said something in Shamoro. I didn't understand. And uh, her mom went back in the house and came out with the doll. And the 
holster and gun cowboy sale I've got for the boy, she had said she wanted a picture taken with her toy. <laughs> so I had a picture of them with her, with her toys. But they were Shimoros. Sh- it, was, it was the natives of the, of the island were called Shimoro. C-H-C-H-M-O-R-R-O. And uh, they've been there a long time. I've, one, side, one time when I was out wandering around the island, I was down on the beach area in a park, and I found some of the uh, pieces of pottery from, from their former civilization before the Spanish got there and uh, civilized them. So it was kind of neat that way. And they also had a fort on the island that was built in the 1800s. And they told me about the day that a Spanish ship pulled into the port and fired a gun in salute of the fort. And this fort fired a shot back at the ship. The Spanish ship did not know the Spanish-American War was over yet, but they knew when the island of Lama was over. <laughs> <laughs> so that mm. was kind of an interesting, interesting but the part of that fort is still there mm. and is a, probably a tourist attraction now I got all over the, I have beautiful waterfalls in one area I, got, I went to see that when I was working in the galley I would be off every third day sometimes for two days in a row and so I was I was all over the island of Guam I had a buddy like I say in the Air Force from high school to see him and uh, I had this other buddy my next door neighbor that was in the army and he was drawing the maps up for the next invasion <laughs> but I got to see him so uh, I had it was uh, I got around pretty good were there any uh, prisoners of war that were on the uh, island uh, that you encountered uh, oh yeah first of all I should say you didn't go out in the jungle at all the first few months I was there because there were still Japanese out there that were had not surrendered. They sent one group of eight, uh, six, pardon me, six Marines out to look for Japanese. They found five of the Marines dead, and the fifth one, sixth one, played dead because they all of all of all of the jungle they came, shot them, came down, took their shoes and their guns, and disappeared. The one that played dead was the only one that knew what happened. But so you didn't go out in the jungle. Later on, you did. It was okay. But uh, and there was one sailor on that island from World War II that stayed hidden for till the war was over. And the the Navy made a hero out of him, from hiding out from the Japanese for two and a half years or whatever it was. The thing was, it was the natives of the island that hid him and fed him and protected him from being being caught. And the natives were very, very disturbed the fact that he saw himself as a hero and forgot to mention all the help he got from the natives that hid him out in the caves and everything else from the Japanese. But uh, that that was kind of an interesting tale I came across and uh, probably not well known how how he... Most of the time, all of the rest of the time, the uh, Chamorros, the natives, loved the Americans. But when that particular particular American, they didn't see, they didn't like him too well, <laughs> even though they took care of him for well, a couple of years while he was hidden, hiding on the island. Were there any particular um, boats, aircraft carriers, or uh, American oh, when, uh, oh, warships that you repaired uh, oh. or worked on? No, I didn't work on any of them. Okay. I was in re- supply. Supplies. And same as I did in San Diego. Okay. I would write the orders up for the electronic gear, the repair orders for up for the re- to replace the re- mm-hmm. electronic gear, the radio, sonar, radar, whatever it was, and uh, the men would take it out and put it on the ship. 
and we replay we built okay world war ii in the pacific kept going further and further west we took you know island after mm-hmm. island going west so pretty soon it was a long way back to pearl harbor to get a ship fixed if something went wrong with it to get it repaired it, it took them days to get back there and get it fixed and then days to get back to the front line again so the navy decided to build a navy base on the island of guam we built one big navy base on guam we could take any battle wagon any aircraft carrier put it into a floaty dry dock i know my hands won't show it up too well in the television screen <laughs> uh, but they, they could float this air, air battleship into a dry dock and then raise that dry dock up out of the water and work on the propellers or work on the hull or anything that had to be repaired on the bottom of the ship aircraft carrier battleship anything in between anything smaller than that we had three of those or maybe five of those on the island of guam we brought them piece by piece they came back through came through us from the west coast east coast through the panama canal and then we were reassembled in guam into a floating dry dock so we could repair ships that way. So we could repair any when the, the um, Pittsburgh, I think it was, came in there. The Japanese had blown her bow off. We could put on a fake bow or a temporary that bow, mm-hmm. so she could get back to Seattle. I think it was where she could get a new new bow put on by the ship ship company, the building company. But we could do anything that had to be done to a ship on the island of Guam without sending it all the way back to Pearl Harbor or to San Francisco or someplace to be repaired. Uh, I, we had a lot of Japanese prisoners of war, probably a thousand or so. I'm not sure. I got to know some of them quite well. That was not smiled upon, I guess would be the term. It was frowned upon. But I got to know them. I would talk to them. Some of them spoke a little English. One uh, the warrant officer I was speaking to one day was we were sitting in a little area and there was a newspaper on the floor, uh, Navy Times, and I said, uh, "Do you read that headline?" And he said, "Yes." U.S. reveals Japanese invasion plans. Well, reveals an invasion seemed like big words to me, but he knew it. He could read it. Now he was a warrant officer, but a lot of the enlisted were learning English on their own from the guards or however they could. The interesting thing was, first of all. They were not trying to run away from us Well, after they were prisoners. They were, we were getting three meals a day, same as we were getting. They were getting a 15-minute break in the morning and a 15-minute break in the afternoon per the Geneva Convention for the treatment of prisoners from war. When it came time for their break, they'd be all sitting around in the grass talking, and the guard would be standing there watching them or sitting with them. If they needed water, he would say to one guy, you go get, take all their canteens, you go get water, and come back. And their Japanese would prisoner would go take all their canteens and disappear to find the nearest water spigot someplace and he would come back with the water he wasn't going to run away <laughs> he, was, he, he was living too good of a life you know? <laughs> so they were getting treated treated well so i got to know them quite well they um they called me i would i would exchange things for, i would like one guy said you got any money he says yes he's got 10 yen i said give you a dollar for it no no 10 yen worth more than a dollar no no you lost the war not worth anything <laughs> so I got it for a dollar. Uh, but I would trade with them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would bring them soap or toothpaste or something like that that they couldn't, didn't have at the barracks. And uh, they called me Changey Boy. That was the name they gave me, Changey Boy. And one day I was walking down the road 
they were all in the field there, picking the little little rocks out of, out of the ground, putting them in a pile, away, getting out of the grass, getting the grass greener. And uh, they saw me coming. They all stood up, and when I walked by, they all bowed down and said, "Konnichiwa, Changey Boy. Konnichiwa, Changey Boy. Good afternoon, Changey Boy." They, <laughs> and 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 the guards started looking. Who the hell is this guy? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Because it looked like I was an enemy or something. <laughs> they all knew me. Every one of them knew me. <laughs> so it was kind of embarrassing when that happened. I was careful, more careful from then on. But I learned to speak a little Japanese. I, I learned to count because I wanted to argue the price of oh. things. So Ichidi, Sanshi, Go, Rokushi. I knew the could count all the way up. And uh, one, one time, uh, I would, oh, they would buy me, they would get me, um, I would give them a handkerchief. Give him one, give him one guy a prisoner, a handkerchief of mine, white handkerchief. And he would take it back to the barracks. The next day he would bring it back, and he would have drawn me a picture mm-hmm. of a geisha girl, a temple, a cherry blossom tree. And uh, I'd give him a dollar for it or something like that. And so the, I, I, had, I had a whole bunch of those. Most of them I've lost. I only, had, only got one left now. But So I, I had good contact with all of them. They all knew who I was. And... Uh, well, they knew my name is Changey Boy, but they didn't know when they saw me coming. But it was interesting times. News didn't travel um, quite the same way in 1945 as it does today. Uh, <laughs> do you recall, uh, can you tell the listeners about how the uh, the end of World War II, uh, at, least, as, at least the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, how were those uh, conveyed we, um, we, um, when it happened? We had a radio station on the island of Guam. I can't remember them to call there's of it right now. I should. But they broadcasted on site the the Battle of uh, Iwo Jima hmm? and, and things like that. So we were up to date to the last minute of what was happening on the, in the war as it went further west. Because we down in the Guam was there, but we still had to Iwo Jima. And I think they were planning on another one. I can't remember now before we went to Japan. But... Uh, the the radio station, local radio station, kept us informed. In fact, the radio station would aver- would say they were aver- they were uh, broadcasting music for the ships at sea. They're around us; they could hear them, and they would say they were broadcasting from the uh, the ballroom of the the uh, Shimoro Ballroom, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Guys had come ashore. Where's the Shimoro Ballroom? Man, we're going to go there and dance. <laughs> and there was no Shimoro Ballroom except on the radio. <laughs> but that kind of was a little disappointment to some of the guys, I'm, I'm sure. But the radio was quite handy. We, we could hear the word, and we could follow along very close on the war in the Pacific, what was going on, how it was going. So we knew when the uh, surrender ceremony took place, I was not there. I was in the island of Guam. But our... The uh, officer in charge of the uh, no, I was in, after World War when World War Two when the, in the Atlantic or in the European War ended, our commissary officer in charge of the the mess hall mm-hmm. told the cooks break out steaks for all of us that work <laughs> in here. The rest of the crew was eating spam as they had been eating every day for months, <laughs> but we had steaks that night in, in, in World War Two, and uh, by World War. When the World War ended in the Pacific, I was at the work in the office down in the base and mm-hmm. didn't have that much contact with the mess hall anymore. <laughs> uh, what, were, what were your last um, weeks and months like before you um, were, to, were uh, discharged from the Navy? 
I was still working in supply mm-hmm. uh, for electronic supply for, um, on, on, down in the base mm-hmm. near the sh- where the uh, ships were coming in to be repaired. And uh, it turns out I was a misinformed person in the Navy. I enlisted when I was 17. Mm-hmm. I thought I had gotten a... a um, Minority enlistment, which meant that I would be in until the day before my twenty-first birthday. Okay. Excuse me. So the water, the world, water, the world was over on Guam, Pacific. I thought I had to stay there. I was twenty-one. One day I got a phone call. What the hell are you still doing on this island? I said, Well, I thought I had beer. I was twenty-one. You should have gone home a long time ago. I, I was actually there two or three months longer than I had to be. Um. So. So uh, the next day, I was out of the barracks and another barracks for one day, and then I was on a plane to Pearl Harbor. And I got bumped there because I was only a second, first class, third class petty officer, and I had to take a ship the rest of the way, a troop ship the rest of the way. I remember, I remember coming in under the Gold Gate Bridge in San, San Francisco when I got back. You came back to the United States to yeah. San Francisco? Yeah, San Francisco. Okay. Uh, Wally concluded um, his service in the Navy uh, two years, ten months, and two days. Yeah. Who was uh, counting? Who was counting? Uh, and yeah. he came back to Columbus uh, after he was discharged and finished, uh, got his high school degree from high school diploma from yeah. Grandview Heights. And I went to uh, OSU for about a quarter, but then mm-hmm. I also went to business school for about 18 months and I took accounting and um, there's okay. other business courses there. Okay. Now, there's a past to my Navy career. Mm-hmm. When I came home and you're being discharged, they tell you all about being a civilian again. But then they say, now we have this thing called the Navy Reserve, where you drill, go to drill, and then you go once a year, you have to go away for two weeks for training. And uh, you get paid for that, and you keep your rate, and you get some longevity built into it. Anybody interested? I raised my hand. Forty-four years later, I got, well, no, not 44. Forty-two years, 41 years later, I got out. So I did a total of 44 years in the Navy, in the Reserve. Mm-hmm. Active duty, World War II, active duty, other couple other places along the way. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia, the Navy Yard for nine months one time. Um, things like that. But I did 44 years in the Navy Reserve then. And I made the rate the rate of Master Chief Personnelman, which is as high as you can go then enlisted. And then in the Reserve, I was a Command Master Chief, which is, uh, doesn't have a pay grade to it, but you, uh, you're the top man over everybody else that's enlisted. And I did that for many, many years. In fact, in the Reserve, mm-hmm. I was in one unit, but when I made man- Command Master Chief, they said, Command Master Chief, you've got to drill with the other units, too. They were dr- they drilled on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So Wally had, well, then they changed it to weekends, because um, you drilled, you had to drill every week. But they went to weekends, you drilled one weekend a month, you got four, four drill credits for it. So I... Uh, would drill one weekend with uh, 
one unit, another weekend with another unit. Another. So I was available to all the enlisted people if they had a problem or a question or an officer had a problem with an enlisted person. They could come to me and say, you know, would you please talk to Petty Officer so-and-so? He's giving me a little bit of a problem with this and this, and I would go talk to him and, and settle, try to get the problem settled. So I did that. So my career went on. In addition to Wally's uh, military service, uh, he and his wife, uh, Barbara, are residents of Hilliard, and uh, I've served the community in a number of capacities. Um, I'll point out as we wrap up, uh, both uh, Wally helped operate the Hilliard Food Pantry for about uh, 20 years until handing it off to some other um, other to I moved, operate. I moved away and then went to, moved to Nevada for the winter, so oh. I had to, had to give it up. Okay. And uh, his wife, uh, Barbara, is um, also a veteran, having served um, in the U.S. Uh, Navy Reserve. And he has a son, um, Terry, who also um, served in the Army Reserve. He was in the, I was in the Army, yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, listeners. We're, we're wrapping up here with uh, marching orders. Um, anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? Wally? Can't think of it. Okay. Unless you want to... Uh, no, that's about it. Okay. Um, thank you for listening. Um, we'd like uh, you to let us know what you think of, uh, of marching orders. Uh, listeners can do this by uh, going to our website, thisweeknews.com. Uh, there is a section called Marching Orders on our website uh, where you can uh, listen to previous podcasts. Uh, we also are happy to hear about any suggestions you have about other subjects we might interview for marching orders. And uh, you can find us on several platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, all four of these you can find uh, you can find it at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Kevin Corbo. Thank you, Wally, for uh, joining me uh, in my first uh, host of Marching Orders. And thanks for listening.